Welcome to this week's Dividend Cafe podcast. I'm recording from uh, San Francisco Thursday night. Just got in and I have some client events and meetings here over the next couple of days. But it has been a very eventful week, particularly around the Fed. And so we'll get right into it this week. I, I told you volatility cuts both ways. So the boring, boring doldrums of summer turned into downside volatility a week or so ago and then turned into upside volatility this week as the central bank-led pleas for more risk and more action were answered by markets with a resounding yes. A lot of this requires some additional commentary, and that's what you'll get from the podcast this week, so let's get into it. There, there are pockets of the S&P 500 that are valuation rich on a historical basis, quite a few pockets, but there are only a couple pockets that we think are really, really rich in terms of valuation. When we talk about investors pouring money into asset classes that are dividend heavy, thereby adding devaluations in a fully priced market, let's note a couple things. The consumer staple sector is traded at 1.75 times its price to book value relative to the S&P 500 for 30 years on average. And its current valuation level is 1.75 times price to book value. In other words, that ratio is not remotely out of whack from its 30-year average. Now, the P.E. ratio is about 8% more than normal relative to the S&P 500. But I would point out that profits in the sector are in some cases up 20 to 30%. Would any sector seeing that kind of profit growth and have modest digit, modest single digit multiple expansion be considered excessive? Um, there, there are areas we're concerned about, and we actually do believe the utility sector, for example, has more froth in it than some of the other dividend-loving sectors. But as far as consumer staples go, we want you to have all the facts. Trump and Hillary are a walk in the park compared to this. Understandably, many Americans have been flustered at the state of affairs in our election cycle this year. Both candidates' internals, popularity, likability are lower um, within their own parties than any candidate we've really ever chosen to lead the uh, uh, either Republican or Democrat Party. However, a quick look across the pond might, can, might provide a more sanguine view by comparison, certainly provide a fuller picture as to why we're so down on European markets right now. Germany has a big election in September of next year. The factions are more divided there than any time in half a century. Merkel's coalition has fallen apart. The extremely populist AFD party has picked up momentum. Tremendous questions exist about Germany's next batch of leadership. Um, France has a presidential election in April of 2017, and the trends are very polarizing there. Spain has had no effective government for almost a year now, um, not reaching the parliamentary thresholds they need. And Italy, as we've talked about, votes in November this year on a referendum that could lead to the resignation of their prime minister. The reality is this. Europe is dealing with many conflicts in monetary and fiscal needs within its own member countries, divergent interest. Their political framework is very challenged. Their debt levels unsustainable and organic growth is virtually non-existent. I'm not thrilled with our political landscape right now here in the United States. But by comparison, big difference. 
A tangled web we weave when they first practice to relieve. The Fed's desire to relieve borrowers of the burden of higher interest costs can be forgiven coming out of the financial crisis. The desire was to relieve the economy of that unproductive use of funds and see borrowers, whether corporate or individual, redeploy funds instead in more productive uses. The problem, of course, is that it creates side effects. It encourages behavior that may not be good or appropriate. If there was one thing I could communicate to clients right now, it's how hard the dilemma is to manage around asset prices being expensive and the potential for asset prices to become more expensive should central banks stay lower for longer than people think. Risks abound when markets are not right. Fall of 16 feels like the fall of 15. Does this story sound familiar? A couple weeks before the September Fed meeting, word breaks that there really, really, really might be a Fed rate hike at the September meeting. No, really, I mean it. The markets react, the media calls in special anchors and pundits, and then the September meeting takes place. And lo and behold, they don't raise rates, but they say they really, really, really will in December. The market prepares for that, December comes, they raise a quarter of one percentage point, and everyone yawns because it was priced in for two months. If that does sound familiar, it's because you watched this movie last year, and now you're watching it again. Look over here, your Fed is not the only Fed in town. With all eyes and ears, understandably on the US Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan said Wednesday morning that it will make control or manipulation of the yield curve, the center points of its new policy framework. It will continue purchasing bonds heavily to keep rates around 0%, quantitative easing. The bank deposit rate remains just below 0%, negative. They did say they plan to continue expanding their monetary base until inflation overshoots their target. Okay, they're not being dishonest or hiding the ball. They're trying to create inflation and having a very difficult time doing it. And it said, uh, the Bank of Japan said their ongoing QE endeavors will function in any maturity range they want. And they previously were quite narrow and short-term and tight in that. They really were about as aggressive as, as you can imagine, um, as anyone could have imagined. So obviously the dollar, uh, well, you know, if you're talking about something currency related or Forex related, the word obvious should never even enter the conversation. So I'll stop right there. If equity markets can make a person go mad, currency markets can make that person rip their face off. One would think the various shenanigans going on right now would create rip-roaring volatility across currency markets. One would think the Fed's virtual promise to raise rates in December would push the dollar up versus other currency options. One would think negative interest rates around the globe would be rallying the dollar. And so it is. One would think becomes expensive words because in reality, I'm more and more sympathetic to the argument that the G20 countries made a sort of pact at the beginning of the year to not allow any traumatic currency spike one way or the other, and that we're in a temporary period of forced calmness. The reason clients and investors should care is simple. If currency volatility is low, then global markets are believing that central banks are in charge and that they're facilitating a healthy risk-on environment. When currency volatility is elevated, it points to a lack of faith in central bank control and a movement towards risk off. Isn't that obvious? 
Once these things are bad, then we'll know that they are bad. One of the strangest things about my job is the amount of people who tell me we feel bad things coming on and it sure seems like it's time to lighten up risk. And then things get better and better and better. Then they drop and then they say, yeah, see, I felt it all along. One of the things all people can do, everyone I've ever met in my business and outside my business, is say, oh, at some point in the future, there'll be rough patches. We all know that. The problem with that not very helpful foresight is that it requires some sense of timing to be attached to it, to be useful or actionable. And just as much as all people can predict the reality of rough patches, nobody can time such things. Nobody. Not consistently. Dumb luck, by the way, is not timing. Knowing default rates are low right now with high yield bonds and floating rate bank loan bonds does tell me why those asset classes are doing well now but it doesn't tell me how they'll do in the future because we don't know how default rates will go in the future. When we do know, it'll be too late to do anything about it. So we avoid an investment philosophy of Captain Obvious and instead remain strategic in a risk-reward trade-off sense while also being sensitive to valuations. I do believe we face economic adjustments a lot of people are not going to like, mostly those who believe that central banks can permanently play monetary god. I also believe that investing for how we think things should be immediately instead of how they are now or how they're likely to be can be very expensive and even silly. The Fed and its fraternity of global central banks have deferred again. In the meantime, we remain on the left side of a hump, not the right side. The time it takes to get to the hump of normalizing monetary policy is a total mystery. We're striving to avoid two mistakes for our clients. One, to not believe the hump is there, it is. And two, to believe it's immediately in front of us when it just plain might not be. So to that end, we work. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll talk to you next week on the Dividend Cafe podcast.